Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the wonderful confidence that we have in Christ, that you will not leave us, you will never forsake us, that if we are in Christ, we shall be in Christ forever. And all the blessings that he enjoys, all the riches of his glory will be ours throughout all eternity. I pray, Lord, that today these truths might be so real to us that we might be able to appropriate them by faith, to live in the light of them, that our lives will be recharged and refreshed and transformed. Speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. Open your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A good friend of ours, that is a good friend of South Church, Dr. James Greer, passed away a couple years ago. And Jim was a Scotsman. At his funeral, there were tears, but also there was a lot of laughter. They shared some anecdotes about his life and the fact that he loved being a Scotsman. And one of his favorite sayings that he picked up somewhere in Europe as they assessed European Christianity, I thought was really noteworthy. He used to say, the Brits love the gospel because they can talk about it. Apparently, the English are known for talking things to death. So they delight in the gospel because they can talk about it. The Welch, fiery as they are, love the gospel because they can sing about it. The Irish love the gospel because they can fight about it. And the Scots love the gospel because it's free. <laughs> You know, they're known for being thrifty and frugal, or just downright cheap. And uh, they would laugh about that. But you know, that's a good reason to love the gospel. It's free. There's nothing that you and I have to do to earn it or deserve it. And all the blessings that God give to us, gives to us, so rich, are free because they come to us in Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God. And I'm convinced that often in our lives, we go chasing after other gods instead of delighting ourselves in God alone. In the Psalms, we read these words, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I ask you this question, do you delight yourself in God you say, Pastor, how should I delight myself in God? Well, there's a lot of ways, but one of the best places to go to is Psalm 16. So if you have your Bibles, let me urge you to open up Psalm 16. And it's often called the Psalm of Delights. Because David, the author, is writing about how he delights in the Lord. He kind of divides the psalm into two major sections, and we will as well. But he focuses on those things that are free gifts of God's rich grace that we need to focus on, that we need to be blessed by, that we need to be delighted in. We read in Psalm 16, in the introduction, it's not only a psalm of David, but it is also a miktam. And the best understanding of that particular word, it might be some musical expression or instruction, but it seems to mean engraved 
which some people then have felt that this is a poem worthy of being engraved. Keep it permanently. Engrave it in stone. Carve it in wood. You and I would frame it and put it on our walls. It's something so good it needs to be repeated by way of reading and it needs to be memorized and reviewed over and over again because it tells us about the path of life. It tells us about how to delight in God and allow the richest blessings of God to be ours. Now, I'm going to go through the first section rather quickly with just a few comments, but I think the first seven verses focus on the fact that the psalmist delights in the Lord's blessings, and therefore he is content. The psalmist is delighting in the Lord's blessings, and therefore he is content. Notice, he has a request in verse 1. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. So first of all, he's delighting in God himself. That's the richest of all blessings, that God has given himself to us. Notice he prays that God would protect him, verse 1, and that is going to be the theme that is repeated later in the psalm. But he says in verse 2, you're my Lord, you're my master. I've decided I'm following you. And there's nothing in my life that I can call good that doesn't come from you. Now, that's a mature perspective. In fact, I'm convinced that no Christian is going to grow in their life until they come to the realization that every good thing they have comes from God and nothing they possess is good unless it's from him. James puts it this way in James chapter 1. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It's God and God alone. He's the one who made the lights, the heavens, the sun, moon, and stars. He'll never change, and he blesses us with good gifts. That's all he does is give good things. If you have anything good, it comes from God. There is no good in you. All your goodness is derived. All your goodness is received from Jehovah himself. That's where you have to set your affection, centered on God alone. So that's one of his good gifts, God himself. Secondly, there are godly friends. That's verse 3. As for the saints who are in the land, they're the glorious ones. And in these saints is all my delight. Godly friends. Aren't you thankful for godly friends? The word saints in the Old Testament often refers to angels, but these are the saints in the earth. These are the, these are the godly people in the world. And so he's talking about good and godly friends. There are individuals who have committed their lives to Christ as well, just like I have in verse 2. They're the ones that encourage me and support me. And you cannot love God unless you love the people God loves. 1 John chapter 1, this is how we know we've passed from death to life. We love the brethren. We love other Christians because God loves them. And we have the same perspective. And if you don't love Christians, there's something wrong with you. 
I've heard people say, I really like church. It's the people I can't stand. Which, and I've heard pastors say that too. You know, I like being a minister. It's the people I can't stand. Well, there's a bit of a problem with that because the church is the people. And whatever subculture we've created called church that has nothing to do with people is not of God. And we're designed to live in community and support one another and encourage one another. And notice David says, I take delight in these people who are my dear friends. But then he contrasts in verse 3, godly people with ungodly people in verse 4. What are ungodly people like? Well, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. Or as it says in the New Living Translation, troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. The people in verse 3, well, they're committed to God alone. And David says, they're my heroes, these godly people. But the people in verse 4, they can't decide on a god. And when they do, it's the wrong one. They're chasing after other gods. They're looking for refuge some other place. They're looking for a Lord to guide them, verse 2, in some other place. They keep running after other gods. Have you ever run into someone who's still spiritually searching and they've been doing that for about 60 years? Ever learning? Never able to come to a knowledge of the truth? How sad is that? You will spend your life searching and never finding. Why, that sounds like punishment. And it is. Troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. David says in verse 4, I'm not going to pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. In other words, I'm not going to join them in their sacrifices. I'm not going to be part of their worship. I'm not going to praise their gods or praise those people. What a contrast between the two groups of people, verse 3 and verse 4. Then David says in verse 5, Man, what an inheritance I have. Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance. The NIV says you've assigned me my portion and my cup, but I, I think the Hebrew lends itself more to saying the Lord is my portion and my cup. Yes, he assigns me other blessings, but the Lord is my portion. He is my inheritance. You've made my lot secure. What you've given to me, you'll never take back. Verse 6, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Maybe he's referring to the division of the land, to the 12 tribes. Asher gets this, and uh, Manasseh gets this, and Dan gets this, and their lines have fallen in pleasant places. I like the boundary lines. I delight Verse 6, in the inheritance you've given me. And you know, God has given us some rich blessings. Everything Jesus has is ours. All those spiritual blessings. Read about it in Ephesians. They're ours. And it's an inheritance that will never be defiled. It will never be corrupt. It will never fade away. We'll never lose it. As it says at the end of verse 5, you've made my lot secure. God has blessed you, hasn't he? Hasn't your lines fallen in pleasant places? As you reflect back on your life, hasn't God been good to you? The godly ones are my heroes. I'm not going to take part in the sacrifices of those who chase after other gods. Lord, you're my God. You're my portion. And the lines in my life have fallen in pleasant places. And not only that, verse 7, you counsel me day and night. 
I praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, even in the night seasons, my heart instructs me. God leads us in the day and he leads us this night. He gives his beloved sleep and he's constantly there to give us guidance. Oh, I tell you, the blessings of God are unbelievable. And if you can't be content with that, then why are we so discontent? Paul said in 1 Timothy, godliness with contentment, that's gain. Ah, we're chasing after other gods. We haven't settled yet like David did on God and God alone. But once you do, you'll be able to derive rich contentment in your life. And you'll be happy. There'll be peace and wonderful satisfaction. Now, if it's possible... I don't even know if I can term it this way. But if it's possible, the last half of the psalm is even more dynamic than the first. The last half of the psalm gives us something that can really change our lives. Because in the last half of the psalm, David says he delights in the Lord's presence. And this gives him confidence. Now there's a confidence about his life. You see, so many people who call themselves Christians not only lack contentment, they lack confidence. They lack assurance. They lack decisive direction and commitment to truth. But David's confident. How come he's confident? Because of God's presence. And that presence is revealed to us in two different ways at two different levels, two different perspectives. First of all, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So now it's the presence of God at my right hand. Okay? At my right hand. Jesus, God, is with me right here. What does right hand signify? Intimate friend. He's right with me. Moral support, my right-hand man. This is my wingman, right? This is, this is my bodyguard. It suggests physical assistance. It suggests agreement and approval and a unity of person and fellowship. He's right at my right hand. Now, here's the thing with Christians. Is God with us? You say, yeah, I know, God is everywhere present, so he's always with us. Yeah, but the Bible talks about God being with us in a deeper way than that, doesn't he? Doesn't it? Where two or three are gathered together, there he is in your midst. So there is a deeper presence of God felt when we gather together. Paul says amen to this in 1 Corinthians when he says that the Lord fills his temple, and the word temple now is plural, referring to the gathered church of God. God dwells in each one of us, and we are the temple of God. But when the temples of God, every individual believer, gather together for worship, God dwells collectively in his plural temple, in all of you plural. So that means when we come to worship, God is here in a unique way. And yet many people come and leave and never notice it. It's like Jacob in the Old Testament. The Lord was here and I knew it not. Never recognized it. I'll talk to people after the service and they'll say, wasn't that a rich blessing? God really met with us. 
and then someone else just criticizes the whole thing. Boy, that didn't do much for me. (laughs) What's more telling? Is that a critique on the service or that person's heart? God is here. And God is with you every day. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And as you take my message out, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Those are the words of God to your soul. Are they true? Then one of the greatest things we should do every day is see God at our right hand. David says, I've set him there. That doesn't mean he wouldn't be there otherwise. It means I've become conscious. I have consciously, intentionally, recognize God by faith right here. You're at my right hand, and I shall not be moved. When our kids were growing up, we used to do something called I spy. At the dinner table, we would say, tell us where you saw God show up in your life throughout the day. They didn't quite get that, so we had to tell them a little bit of what we meant. So we would say, you know, I was driving and, and it was icy and the car began to swerve and boy, the Lord helped me get it back. God showed up. He protected me from an accident. And someone else would say, well, I met a new friend today and it was so great and we had a great connection and, and what a blessing godly friends are. God showed up today. And our kids picked it up. And then it wasn't one or two things. You couldn't stop them. And, and you know, one person would say something trivial, and the other kid would say, that's not God showing up. And the other person would say, yes, it is. And then we'd have to let them know that God shows up in even small ways. It was exciting. They were fighting about God showing up in their life. Of course, trying to top each other to have more than the other. You know how that kind of thing goes. But they were seeing God. And what I realized is, when I don't do something like that exercise, I can put my head on the pillow at at night, and I never saw God all day. Never saw him in the smile of a baby, in the sunshine of a gorgeous day, in the arm of a friend, in the prayer of a supporter. I never saw God. Well, David says, if you do that, you're not going to have contentment and you're not going to have confidence. But I've always set the Lord before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I won't be shaken. I'll be able to stand. There's a strength and security about all of this. Stability. Not only that, there's joy. Look at verse 9. My heart is glad. No wonder my heart rejoices and my tongue sings for glory. And my body will rest secure. What was he praying for in verse 1? Oh, Lord, keep me safe. And now he says, this is how I feel safe when I'm with the pres- in the presence of God. My body will rest from stress. I will be secure. I've always said, if I needed a bodyguard, I would choose Jim Szymanski. Jim, if you know Jim, he attends usually the creative service, big tall guy, about 6'4", played in the NFL with the Denver Broncos and the Pittsburgh Steelers, was a defensive end, played at Michigan State, um, big bruiser of a guy. If I ever needed a bodyguard, I'd want Jim. If I were walking down a dark alley, you know, alone, and some guys came toward me with evil intent, I would run. But if Jim was by me, I think I might walk toward him. (laughs) Puff up the chest a little bit, you know. 
gyms up like this and puff up my chest and say, come on, guys. I've got Jim, my wingman. Now, if I looked and he was gone, I would run <laughs> as fast as I could. Did you ever think in every situation of life, bring it on, Jesus is right with me. I can take it. Apparently, he wants me to. He's right here. He's at my right hand. I won't be moved. My heart's going to rejoice. My, my heart's going to be glad. My tongue's going to rejoice. My body is going to be filled with peace and security because I know God, and he's at my right hand. He even goes on, and in verse 10 and 11, this may shock your socks a little bit, but there are three legitimate interpretations of verse 10 and 11. Three, yeah, three. Let me give them to you. Number one, uh, the author David might have been saying, Lord, I'm facing death, but I believe you're going to deliver me and I won't die. That happened several times in David's life when he fled from Saul, when he fled from Absalom, when he uh, met the Philistines, and he writes about it like in Psalm 56. I was in, in the cold, in the clutches of death, and the Lord delivered me. So maybe David is saying, this is what you're going to do for me personally. He's also saying, this is what happens for true believers. Look at verse 10 and 11. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, to hell, nor will you let your holy one, and their holy one would refer to a godly one, like in verse 3, a true Christian, you'll not let us see decay in the grave. Oh, our physical bodies might decay in the grave, but we'll be resurrected, right? Because the destiny I have in mind is not the grave. You'll not leave me there. Verse 11, you've made known to me the path of life. I know where this path is going to lead. You will fill me with joy in your presence and at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You see what David is doing? The presence of God. At my right hand, there's stability. There's gladness. There's rejoicing. There's confidence. At your right hand, and that's where I'm going, there is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, and talk about eternal security. It's all there. If God has made this world so fair where sin and death abound, how beautiful beyond compare will paradise be found. You and I cannot imagine the wonderful joys God has in store for us. Amen? I mean, unbelievable. You just can't imagine it. In fact, if we really knew what heaven was like, I think most of us would want to kill ourselves to get there. And so God hasn't told us all the details of how great and awesome the place really is. But David says, I see it. Just like I see you at my right hand, I know where this path is going. Warren Wiersbe says, verse 11 is his life verse. The path of life. I'm walking on the path of life, and I have abundance right now. But I'm going to end up in your presence where there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand, intimate fellowship, moral support, physical assistance, a union that will last forever. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And I can't wait to get there. But there's one third interpretation. You see a third one? Yeah. Acts chapter 2 and verse 24 says this is all about Jesus. About Jesus. I didn't see it the first time I 
read it, but when I read the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, that's the divine commentary on Psalm 16. This is all about Jesus. Let's go to Acts 2, just for a moment. Acts chapter 2. The setting is Pentecost. Believers are gathered together waiting for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes, they're filled, they speak languages they've never learned. And that's a good thing because Jerusalem is filled with over 15 different nations and dialects. They go out of the upper room, most likely, to a place where people are gathered because they heard the sound and now they're hearing these people speak the gospel in their own tongue and they're saying, what in the world is this? And Peter stands up and says, I'll tell you what it is. It's from Joel chapter 2. This is the pouring out of the Spirit. And it's from Psalm 16. This is about the resurrection of Jesus. Wow. So Peter says in Acts 2, you people, this is the first Christian sermon, you people crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Look at verse 24, Acts 2, 24. God raised Christ from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it's impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. Just like David said, and now he quotes Psalm 16, the last part. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I won't be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will also live in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One, this time Holy One means anointed one, Messiah, Jesus. You will not let your Holy One, Jesus, see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now, whether David, when he was writing that, knew that that referred to Jesus or not, we don't know. Sometimes the prophets wrote and didn't know what they were writing about. Peter tells us that in, their, in his epistles. But David, in his writing, or at least um, Peter in his sermon, recognized that that sermon or, the, or that message from, from Psalm 16 has more to it than just human resurrection. And so he says in verse 29, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. In other words, what David said in Psalm 16 was more than just about him. Verse 30, he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, David is speaking about the resurrection of Christ, whether he knew it or not. He, he said that God would not abandon Christ's body to the grave or let his body see decay. And that's exactly right. Jesus was buried, rose again three days later. His body never saw decay. Not at all. Verse 32, God raised Jesus to life. We're all witnesses to this. And he exalted him to the right hand of God. Wow. This last time we were in Jerusalem, I got a new perspective on this portion of Scripture. This next picture is an artist's conception of Jerusalem. And I love this picture. It's taken from the vantage point that we are in the suburbs, the, the western suburbs of the city of Jerusalem. And we're looking east, and you see the Temple Mount, the big walls, and the temple is the white building surrounded by those walls. Okay? So we're in the suburbs. Notice the terraces. Uh, the upper room would have been somewhere in this vantage point, this area where we are. 
Look in the distance and you'll see on the horizon the mountains. To the right, you have Mount Olivet, the first arrow. And then to the left, to the north, Mount Scopus. And Jesus was in all of that area teaching. He used to love to go to the Mount of Olives and then come into the city. This next arrow shows you where the Wailing Wall is or what is called the Western Wall. That's what you see on CNN when you see Jerusalem in the news. And in this picture, that's where it is. You can still touch that wall today. What I want you to note is that in the southern end of the temple compound, on the top, you see this long rectangular building with a red roof. That is Solomon's porch, where the red arrow is, or the red dot. That's Solomon's porch or portico. Probably a two-story building. It was on top of the temple mount. It's where people would go sometimes to have classes meet to teach and preach and share. Sometimes you would go there to hide from the sun. You'd go there if it was raining. You'd go there to have a reunion. It was just a great place to hang out, Solomon's portico. And we know Peter preached his sermon from Acts 3 in Solomon's portico. That's where he preached it. Now, right below Solomon's porch, the yellow dot shows some stairs. Those are called the southern stairs. And around that is the mall area. This is one of the main gatherings in all of ancient Jerusalem. There were places to be baptized. There were shops. And it extended around on the west side, too. But those southern steps, those were the main steps to go into the temple compound. When we go to Jerusalem, we sit in those southern steps and read the Bible. And this time, we read from Acts Two, and it just kind of blew my mind away, something I'd never seen before. Now, remember this, and here's another perspective of Jerusalem. This is the model that we see when we go to Jerusalem. The red dot, Solomon's portico, all right? Solomon's porch, long rectangle building, red roof. Below it, the yellow dot, southern steps, and the mall area. Now, this red outline is David City. David's city was small. What you see in the time of Jesus is a much larger city. David's city is just this red outline. Somewhere in David's city, David is buried. That's where David's tomb is. You say, how come they haven't found it yet? That's because there's actually a city living on top of these ruins. And the people living there don't really like you digging in their basement. In fact, some of them want nothing to do with finding archaeological things that support the Bible and especially Christ. So David's tomb, somewhere in that area. And um, if you go to the right place, you probably could find it. In fact, they think they've found some things. Some people say they've discovered it. I'm not sure they have yet. Upper room would be to the left, somewhere in that residential area. Now, here's the thing. Peter's preaching after Pentecost. They're in the room Holy Spirit comes, great sound, and they go out of the room. I think either they go to Solomon's portico, or even more naturally, they go to the southern steps to the mall area where everyone gathers. Because when Peter preaches his sermon, there's thousands of people there. And they're preaching in 15 different dialects. And so Peter's probably on those steps preaching to the people. And he says in verse 29 of Acts 2, Brothers, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and he's buried. And he could have said he's buried right over there. See his tomb? Talk about a visual. I love preaching with visuals. This is a great one. And if you go over to that tomb right there, you'll find David's bones, David's decayed body. 
It's all right there. But David's talking about someone who never would decay. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ. And he preached the resurrection of Christ from Psalm 16. All of that to say, the first Christian message ever preached centered on Christ and the resurrection. He is alive. And if he is alive, then all those blessings he's promised us, himself, an inheritance, godly friends, daily counsel, and even counsel at night, his presence all the time, and glory forever at his right hand, all of those promises are true because of the living Christ. And I tell you, my friend, if he is your delight, then you'll be content and confident. I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Are you? Are you content and confident? Are you like the people in verse 4 who are chasing after other gods? Haven't found my God yet. Still looking. Still looking. I'm still looking for meaning in life. I'm still looking for a unified philosophy of life. I'm still looking for something that makes sense. That's punishment. A journey that never ends. You have no contentment, no confidence, no assurance. These blessings, con contentment and confidence, are found in delighting in Jesus. So what do you delight in? Let's stop chasing other gods. Let's stop delighting in, in money or position or relaxation and leisure. Let's stop delighting in the things that this world can give us. Let's stop delighting in sex and drugs and all of the things that people are chasing after. Some of those things are okay, but they're the gifts. They're not the giver. And Romans 1 says, delight in the giver. When you worship the gift, you're chasing other gods. And contentment and confidence will always elude you. And God will give you over to your chase. He'll give you a mind that doesn't think straight. And you'll worship things he's created instead of the, the one who created them. How can I have contentment? How can I be confident? It's quite simple. Psalm 16 says, delight in God. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for chasing after other things, hoping that they would give us pleasure, somehow thinking that they will satisfy. When you've told us plainly, it's only you. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And when the desires of your heart are satisfied, there is rich contentment. And when you walk in the presence of God, there is great stability and confidence. And when you know that the path of your life is going to end in eternal joy at the right hand of God the Father in the presence of Jesus Christ, then you've got hope and something to look forward to. Lord, I pray, give us a resurrected life as we follow the resurrected Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.